We're going to be in um, Mark chapter 9. Um, we've been going through this book of Mark that up until now has been laying out the question, who is Jesus? And as people sort of engage with him and see what he does, they try to figure out, uh, who is he really? Um, they finally come down where Peter says, uh, we realize now, at least you're close disciples, that you're the Messiah. And yet, even cluing into that, they didn't understand like what that meant. You know, most people thought the Messiah coming meant we'll finally get our politics right, and then everything will be okay, or that we'll have a spiritual and religious renewal, and everything will be okay. And Jesus basically said, "No, your problems run way deeper than that, and so the rescue has to run deeper than that too." Um, my rescue of my people and of the world as the Messiah means I'm going to have to go to the cross. And, you know, remember Peter got embarrassed because he rebuked Jesus about that and said, no, that's, that can't happen. But then after that, Jesus said, not only do I have to go to the cross, if you're going to follow me, your life is going to be basically a life of self-denial. You're going to have to go on the way of the cross too, the Via Dolorosa, right? That's going to be your life as a disciple. And kind of the whole message of that was that there's a cross before the crown, right? Jesus is going to the cross before he's exalted as king of the world at the right hand of the Father, but his disciples expect a great future with him, but there's a cross first. And our lives here are more defined by the cross than they are by the crown of the great future. So most Presbyterians are comfortable just stopping there and saying, yeah, it's going to be grim. Probably worse than you think. But Jesus follows this up sort of by saying, let me tell you about the crown a little bit because it's really good. Right? Um, you need to see that the cross isn't the end in itself. It's toward a good and very appealing end. And so you need to see that. And so he takes some of his disciples up on the mountain for what's known as the transfiguration in which they kind of see a glimpse of the future of who he is and really even of who they're going to be. So we're going to look at that and see how that sustains us now when life isn't pleasant and full of glory yet. Um, what does it mean to have this vision of Jesus in our minds? So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please come help us. Um, we can read and understand things and talk about them, but what we need to have happen has to be a work that you do by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you come open us to you uh, overcome prejudices and reluctance and inattention, all the things that would make us not hear you and speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 9, verse 1 says, He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, or tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. I've mentioned uh, the perspective glass to you before from Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I keep trying to think of a better illustration of how the future affects us as Christians. So if you've got some of those, give them to me, because I'm going to keep using this until I can think of something better. Uh, the Pilgrims and Pilgrim's Progress are on their way to the Celestial City. They're Christians basically trying to uh, get to heaven. And their life is already bad and difficult. The way of the cross sounds like what it's like for them. They just had to stare literally into hell uh, through a hole in a mountain and then go along their way. And so they're shaken and they come to uh, Mount Clear where the shepherds live. And they take them in to comfort them, but they take them up on Mount Clear to look through the perspective glass, which is like a telescope uh, that's aimed at the celestial city far off in the distance. And they can't see much, but they see something like they get to the city. And it's shaky, but they see uh, something of the glory of the place, they can say. And the idea is that when they go back down and start living life as life normally is, that they'll be sustained by that vision that they had. That their hope is real, that their future is certain. And so being sustained by that vision becomes important to them as they travel on the celestial city and go through the uh, Via Dolorosa of their lives, you know, the, the way of the cross. And the Mount of Transfiguration is supposed to function that way for us too. And in some ways it functioned that way for Jesus himself. It's that with this vision of who Jesus is, um, we who don't see much of our future hope are supposed to be buoyed in it and sustained in trying to live in light of that hope when we don't have very much that reinforces it in our lives. And so that's why it's important for us to understand the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. All, the, all three of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include long descriptions of this because it was pretty centrally important to them. So um, I want us to talk about how it's important to us, but first I want to talk about how it was important for Jesus. Because um, it may be that this was mainly for him. Um, it's very reassuring for Jesus, presumably, to have this experience in ways that are hard for us to know. Because, you know, Jesus is a mystery to us. He's God and man at the same time. And that fits in no one's mind. If that fits in your mind, you're a heretic. You know, and you should change your view. Because we don't understand how God, Jesus can be God and man at the same time. Um, and in his humanity, there are things he didn't know. And we don't know how much he knew or didn't know um, in a situation like this, where he's about to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to go there and be killed. He knows he's going to rise again. He's told him that. But beyond that, uh, we don't know that much. And the one thing we do know, though, is that he was lonely. 
because he had no friends who understood what he was about to go through. When he tried to tell his disciples about it, they uh, every time misunderstood it and opposed him. And so that can't be right. And so he's facing this trial of his life alone. And um, for him to have Moses and Elijah appear to him, and as an aside, how crazy is that? Like recognizable dead people or the resurrection. Uh, if you have questions about that, you should ask one of our new elders. They can explain it. Uh, but, but these are people that know what's going on for Jesus. Like they know what he's about to go through and why. And for him to be able to talk to them had to be pretty precious to him because who else can he speak to? Um, you know, they're very representative characters. Moses uh, is the, the prophet par excellence, you know, the one who was a lawgiver who wrote the first five books of the scriptures, the one had the prophecy that we read in the Old Testament reading where God said, someone like you but greater than you is going to come as a prophet and I'll put my words in his mouth and listen to him, which is what God the Father says in the cloud here, listen to him. Um, Elijah is the speaking, preaching prophet par excellence too. So the, basically what you see is everything that had been a part of Judaism up to this point was leading up to Jesus. A fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah and all like them had done and said is finding its completion in Jesus now. And so for them to come and speak to him is very reassuring in that way. Um, Luke says what they talked about. Mark doesn't include that here. Uh, Luke says they talked about Jesus' pending departure in Jerusalem. But the word departure means exodus. The exodus that Jesus is about to lead. That is, he's going to be the greater Moses who comes and delivers his people not just from political oppression in Egypt. He's going to deliver us from sin and death and hell. That he's rescuing us and taking us out of the house of slavery, bringing, bringing us into his kingdom with a new freedom and a new life and hope. The promised land is the new creation. Uh, the righteous don't just inherit land in Palestine. The righteous inherit the earth through Jesus. Everything Moses did was preliminary. Everything Elijah preached was preliminary. And the disciples see this when the, uh, they look up after the cloud of glory comes on them and they're on their faces. They look up and they see Jesus alone. It kind of says that redundantly. To say, look, this isn't a place for three tabernacles. Uh, like here, the third, this being the third piece of the puzzle that, that completes the other so much. There's one. All of that was leading to this. Um, Jesus isn't just a prophet, he's the prophet. But what Jesus can see from this is that heaven sees and heaven knows what he's going through and what he's facing, uh, which has to be tremendously sustaining for him as he goes into the week of his passion and all that he's going to suffer and endure there. And then on top of that, he has the approbation of the Father, who just like in his baptism, speaks where everyone can hear and says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Um, which is, of course, important for the disciples, but important for Jesus too. The love and approbation of His Father. When He's facing uh, a separation, which is also mysterious to us on the cross, that's coming, in which he cries the cry of dereliction from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for him to hear the voice from heaven before that has to be sustaining for him as he faces his passion. 
But it's also important for his followers to hear this, then and now. Um, one, to see who he really is. And then second, to um, see what he has in store for us. First, to see who he really is. That um, you know, He's there on this mountain and all of a sudden this light is there. The description seems, it's like describing something you've never seen before. Mark's trying to say uh, nobody could bleach anything that white. But it wasn't just something that was white, it was something that was radiating light. And I don't know, you read much of the Bible, you start to think we're climbing up on a high mountain and there's this radiating light in the presence of God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Elijah met with God on top of the mountain. Moses met with God on top of the mountain. And this cloud of light that is a little of the glory of God. It's like as much as anybody could survive of the glory of God. And, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain, having been around that, you remember what his face was like? His face was shining uh, so brightly because of that that he had to wear a veil. Because he was reflecting the light that he'd experienced on that mountain. But when Jesus is on the mountain, He's not reflecting that light. He's radiating that light. It's coming out of Him. Like, this is the fulfillment of everything we've seen. The, you know the glory cloud in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, and then the cloud of cloud by day, pillar by night, and the wilderness wanderings that would rest on the temple and the Holy of Holies, and then when the temple was built, the glory of God came down on the temple, representing the presence of God of the people, and in Ezekiel, I'll stop in a minute. In Ezekiel, the, uh, the glory departs, Ichabod. And you have this 10 chapter long description of the glory leaving the temple. And the hope of the Messiah is that, that um, God will come back to his people. And here Jesus is, and everything says, This is me. The temple was about me. The cloud on Mount Sinai was about me. I'm the presence of God with his people. God in human flesh. And the disciples see this. And, you know, as much as their minds have been blown trying to figure out who Jesus is, their minds are really blown now. They're terrified, babbling. Poor Peter. You know, some people talk when they're scared. You know, and, yeah. I'll build three tabernacles. Okay, no. Um, but, but of course they're scared. And then the brighter cloud and the voice from heaven, and, you know, that's enough to undo you. As mountaintop experiences go, this is a big experience, right? But their takeaway from it is, who is this? This Jesus is God. He is Yahweh, the Sovereign Lord, the one who spoke the world into being. He's not just a messenger of God. He is God. And I don't have a category for that, but I don't have any other explanation either. So, they learn who He is. Uh, like the book of Hebrews says, God who's spoken many times and places... Uh, through the prophets, has now spoken to us in these last days in His Son. The final word from God. And when the voice from heaven says, listen to Him, the disciples get this message. Even if He's saying things like, I've got to go to the cross, and you pretty much have to go to the cross too, listen to Him. And so they do. But another, maybe even more interesting to us in this is that... Um, when Jesus was transfigured, what we get there is not so much a glimpse of His divinity, but a glimpse of His glorified humanity. This is 
Jesus a glimpse of what the resurrection will mean and be of glorified humanity. When Peter saw him after radiating the light and things, he doesn't say, my Lord or my God. He says, Rabbi. He's human. And what we see in Jesus' glory as a human being is what human beings were made to be and what we will be again when Jesus' process of restoration is finished in us. Uh, Things that we get tiny glimpses of now, what the capacities and beauty of human beings and what they can do and be is, you know, is nothing compared to what we will be. And the scripture says pretty regularly that we wind up sharing the glory of Jesus. Like he's going to glorify us uh, in the same way that he has been glorified. Not that we become divine, but we become human for the first time and really. Like, think about a couple of passages. I'll read them. I won't be too long, but it says uh, in 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled face, which is a reference to Moses on the mountain, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Like, this will be our glory. I mean, you see... I don't, I don't understand ballet, but anytime I've seen ballet, I just think, well, human beings can do that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's astounding to see what human beings are capable of and lots of other examples, but they're just tiny foretastes of the glory that's to come. Romans 8 says the suffrage of the present world don't compare with the glory to be revealed to us when we obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so when we look at Jesus transfigured on the mountain, we're saying this is also a sustaining vision for us because we realize that with all the indignities and disgraces of human life as we experience it, something far more beautiful is coming. And the path that we're walking on the way of the cross is a path that goes to something very beautiful. And this is what we see in the transfiguration of Jesus. Did you see the... The quote from C.S. Lewis in the bulletin uh, at the front, where he says this about humanness. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And then down toward the bottom, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And the transfiguration of Jesus and his true humanity uh, is the reinforcement of that, that notion. Um, I'm always a little iffy when uh, you have an experience like this that's so far outside the realm of any other experiences we have. None of us has been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you're not going to be. If you are, you're probably delusional in some way. You know, This isn't our experience. Uh, and when Peter talked about it, you hear the New Testament reading, what he said, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We were eyewitnesses of this when we were with him on the 
on the mountain and heard the voice of the majesty from on high. Uh, this is the word of the prophets made more sure, and you do well to listen to it. Uh, like to a lamp in the dark until the day breaks. And so we hear this, we look at Jesus, we say, well, until the day breaks, until we see things like the transfiguration as part of our normal experience, until then we pay attention to what He said. We pay attention to what He said as our light in the darkness in the meantime, so that we can be sustained in our hope. Um, Close with this example, uh, Martin Luther King, when he was uh, speaking, preaching, always hard to tell the difference with him, um, uh, at the Memphis sanitation workers strike just before his death um, was talking about the hope that he has in the future that enables him to walk the path of the cross in the meantime and listen to what he says it's a little bit long but stay with me I don't know what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind like everybody, I would like to live a long life, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The Mount of Transfiguration is the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's what we've seen. Right? This is to be our sustaining hope uh, when the vision of the glorified Jesus uh, enthralls us and captures our imagination. Then it's what will sustain us as we're called to walk the way of the cross. Let's pray.